From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is the Big Story Podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. Sexual harassment is one of the big stories of the fall, first in Hollywood, then in the media, and now in politics, and particularly in Congress. I'm David Hawking, senior editor of CQ Roll Call, and with me to discuss how this story will play out on the campaign trail and at the Capitol in the months ahead are Simone Pathé with me in the studio, a political reporter for Roll Call, and by phone from Atlanta, Patricia Murphy, a columnist for Roll Call. Simone, let's start with you. Some, some interesting polling came out uh, just yesterday uh, that leads me to just sort of ask you, what do these polls tell us about what the electorate is thinking about this story now? Yeah, so we're now far enough away from the initial allegations breaking against Moore and even last week's initial allegations against Al Franken to have a little bit of data, a little bit more reliable data. But one figure that stuck out to me most significantly was from a Quinnipiac poll that was released yesterday. And we're seeing a huge partisan difference in whether sexual assault allegations by multiple women would affect uh, whether people would vote for a candidate or not. So... 43% of Republicans would consider voting for a candidate who's facing these kinds of allegations. Just 12% of Democrats would feel inclined to do the same. Uh, Those are remarkable numbers. Patricia, I'm guessing that's the first time you've seen uh, those statistics. So here's a a fastball to you. you. How do you react to that? I think if I have not had a chance to look at the crosstabs, my assumption would be that there's a, not only a gen, I would bet there's a gender gap in those numbers. I think women tend to be more democratic in their voting, and I would bet that there would be a big gender gap into whether or not voters think that uh, gender discrimination, sexual harassment is a problem and how they would vote as well. Um, so I've seen that in inter- interviews on the ground, even in Alabama, and I would say that there's got to be a big, big gender function in how people are receiving all the information. Interesting point. So I think we should probably stay, say the three of us here at the top that that um, this story is just getting started when it comes to Congress and politics. Roy, Roy Moore was sort of the at the leading the leading edge since then. Senator Al Franken, so Roy Moore, Republican candidate for the Senate in Alabama. Al Franken, Democratic senator from Minnesota uh, in the last couple of days. John Conyers, the most longest serving member of the House, a Democrat from Michigan. Uh, there, there's reports of flying around about several other uh, members to come out in the days ahead. But either way, it seems to I think it's a safe prediction um, that this is going to be an equal, a, a bipartisan problem uh, for for each of the parties going into the campaign. You got any free advice, Simone, for how they should? Uh, <laughs> how the party should handle this? Well, what's really interesting is to see how people respond when it's a politician who they like or when it's someone who agrees with them on the issues. And and Quinnipiac got into this a little bit in the question I alluded to earlier. You know, they asked all things remaining equal. If this was someone you already agreed with, how would you feel? And those numbers reflect that that question. And, and you're seeing that already in, in the Alabama race when um, you have President Trump and the Moore campaign talking about the Supreme Court. You know, that is rhetoric <laughs> designed to turn out base voters who care about maintaining a Republican majority in the Senate, passing tax reform, even if Moore wouldn't actually be here by the time that happened. They're still going to talk about that anyway. Mm-hmm. And you see that on the Democratic side, too, in terms of Franken, that, you know, his vote is too important. Uh, he, you know, this might have happened, but he votes the right way. 
so the extent to which both parties will use issues to try to obscure or mitigate these allegations will be interesting to see. Right. And then the, it's interesting to me that there seems to be a little bit of distance between the way the Democrats are handling Senator Franken at the moment and the way they are handling Congressman Conyers. Congressman Conyers, a congressman since 1965, the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee for, I think, a couple of decades now, already nearing the end of his career and certainly sort of past his prime as a as a policy maker. If the Democrats were to take back control of the House next year, there was there is some a very open question as to whether they would allow Mr. Conyers to actually be the chairman of this committee or whether there would be a, a couple of younger members would vie to, to take that job instead. Patricia, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you, you're a veteran not only of covering Congress, but actually you've worked you've worked on the Hill. Does that what does that tell you about where the part the Democrats might be in terms of saving their own? Well, I think we have to separate out the Franken accusations and the Conyers accusations because Congressman Conyers um, is accused of doing these things in his own House office to his own staff. Um, and he has reached settlements, we now know, um, with at least one woman and, and perhaps more. And so his allegations, I think, speak to the much deeper cultural problem on Capitol Hill. Al Franken's allegations uh, were all at this time predating his time in the Senate. And I think there's a different, uh, there's just a different degree between those two. So, but I think Congressman Conyers is a real eye opener to Democrats that this will absolutely be a problem because it's not a political problem on Capitol Hill. It's a cultural problem. And my own experience tells me it makes literally no difference if the person in power is a Democrat or Republican. It's if they are um, in a position to abuse that power and make the decision to do that um, on an ongoing basis. So they, both parties have a, have a real significant problem on this issue, I think. Explain to our listeners what you mean, Patricia, about the culture of Capitol Hill. I think I know what you're talking about, but uh, the three of us have spent a lot of time on the Hill, but maybe our listeners haven't. You know, there are two parts to it. There's what the culture um, that I think anybody who's worked on the Hill um, has experienced any woman or maybe even any man. Um, or There is a power dynamic in play. A lot of these members work in their own offices. They're basically their own CEOs. They essentially make up their own personnel choices. Uh, there are loose restrictions around um, how their staff members can be treated. I worked on the Hill for nine years, and I have to say I never had a problem. My offices were all super respectful. My bosses were wonderful. They were all men, um, and I had uh, just I had a terrific professional experience. At the same time, especially young women on the Hill, um, when I was there, we knew who the problem members were. We knew to cross the hall if a certain senator or member was coming down the hall. We would take the stairs <laughs> because we didn't want to be too close to them. Um, we knew certain members not to work for. So you, uh, you knew what was going on in your own office, but I was well aware that there were other people who were um, other members. We call them womanizers at the time. But I think you know you can just also understand that to be sexual harassment in many cases, and it's a problem that we know that was then and this is now, and the problem is ongoing. And there's there was a CQ roll call survey um, that was conducted in just January of this year that showed it's uh, it's still a significant problem for staffers who are working on the Hill. Simone, do you have do you have some some more sort of 
details of that in your head? Yeah, so in the survey that was, as Patricia said, was conducted way before this blew up as a, as a news issue this fall, four in 10 said they believe sexual assault to be a problem on Capitol Hill. One in six said they had personally been victimized, and only 10% said there was a structure in place to report such incidences. So those are obviously alarming numbers if you, if you, if you take those numbers in your head and multiply them by the 535 members of Congress, that means many more than the three we know, or the two we know about so far. Uh, and we should hasten to, we know about four so far because we know the two that have been named, Conyers and Franken. Uh, there was a, a hearing before Congress went home for Thanksgiving break uh, in which two women, uh, a Republican Congresswoman from Virginia, Barbara Comstock, Democratic Congresswoman from California, Jackie Speer, both senior Hill staffers themselves before they got elected, said that they knew of at least one Democrat incumbent and one Republican incumbent who were had a serious sexual harassment problem. Since then, they have said that neither Franken nor Conyers were the people they were talking about. So the, the, the list is already up to four. Um, you know, it, as I said, stories abound about others. We know lots of people are doing reporting on this. Um, and it's not just members, I should add, that they, and, and Patricia makes the excellent point that these um, these offices are run like individual fiefdoms. So there's the member, and then there are the chiefs of staff and the legislative councils and the staff directors, and they're not innocent either. And either of you, jump in. What Congress has done so far to address this, um, and whether you see it as, a, as they're tackling this in a bipartisan way. A lot of female members uh, coming forward to introduce legislation. Jackie Spear has introduced legislation called Me Too legislation that makes it much easier to report uh, sexual harassment in an office. Right now, it's really difficult for staffers to come forward. Senator Menendez, who people are probably familiar with right now based on his legal problems, but he also has an amendment coming up on the Senate tax bill um, that would make it not a deductible expense in a typical business uh, to settle harassment claims. Right now, that's literally an expense that you could deduct off of your taxes if you had to settle a harassment claim. So, you know, there are ways large and small um, that these are being uh, addressed. I've written a column, though, that says, you know, I think that none of this is really adequate. I think that the leadership of both parties really need to get serious about conducting some investigations. There are some serial harassers on the Hill. Um, it wouldn't really be that hard to find them. Uh, Congress investigates things all day, every day. And I think it's very important for Congress to, to really shine a light on itself to get to the bottom of this. Simone, do you sense at the moment that there is, that, that Speaker Ryan... Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the House Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, that they are sort of, they're on this as both uh, trying to correct the culture and trying to stamp out a political problem? Yeah, I think everyone is interested in correcting the culture, whether they're making that a priority at this point or not, I think is yet to be seen. Um, one thing that Spear is trying to do, which I think would definitely help the problem, is just increase the transparency. I mean, right now the reporting process is so circuitous, the burden is absolutely on um, the victim in this case. Often the staffers are young, you know, they can't pay for their own counsel, whereas if it's a member, they have government-provided counsel. The reporting process is is long. It re, uh, involves counseling and mediation and, and required numbers of days between all of these steps before you can even file a formal complaint. And even once you do, those complaints, if they're filed, are closed. There's no way to know that a complaint has been filed against member X. You know, it could be that one particular member has had 10 complaints against him and no one would ever know not to work for him besides word of mouth because those complaints are sealed. And those, and those rules, which you just described, 
Tribe, which are now 20 years old. I, I covered those, I covered the enactment of that law as one of my first uh, jobs at, here at CQ Roll Call. And that was sort of a breakthrough in its day, hmm. strangely. I mean, that was up until that point, there was no, no system, no process. Uh, people who felt victims of sexual harassment, I mean, gender discrimination, racial discrimination, sexual orientation discrimination, disability claims, none of that was even, you know, allowed to be um, contested on the Hill. So it's, and so 20 years ago, that was a big deal. Now, 20 years later, it seems like it's time, it's, it's going to be time for a modernization and update. So back to you, Patricia, for the, the final word today. Um, you've been around congressional leaders a while. Uh, you also, having worked on the Hill, you know what, how the rumor mill is and how the leadership tends to hoover up pretty reliable intelligence on other members. Uh, they probably know, have a list in their own back pockets. Why aren't they calling them out themselves? Well, I think that this... Um I think we all know the answer to that, okay? Everything, any allegation against the fellow member, especially in this environment, is going to blow up into a gigantic scandal. And the scandal will be used by the other side. Uh, there are midterm elections looming, and nobody wants to hurt their own chances of, um, of advancing their causes, honestly. Um, I think that's the least charitable interpretation. I think probably some members especially even leadership today, may not have known how widespread the problem was. We've all always heard rumors, but I, I'm sure that that CQ roll call survey that we were talking about, that is so eye-opening. And I think this moment, this kind of cultural moment, um, is telling people it really is this generation's, this leadership's, uh, it's their responsibility to change this culture for the young staffers who are working on the Hill now and who are going to be. Um, they all now know it's a problem if they didn't before. They all now know that these settlements have been made, which both leaders said they didn't know. They actually had no idea that there have been $17 million worth of payments to settle harassment claims within their own membership. And so I think um, a combination of not knowing better not focusing on it, and maybe not even understanding the depth of, of the problem. Um, but it's my hope that this will be the moment that that changes. That'll have to do it for now. Patricia Murphy, columnist for Roll Call, speaking to us uh, by phone. Um, here in the studio, Simone Pathé, a political reporter for Roll Call. I'm David Hawkins, senior editor at CQ Roll Call. Thanks to all of you. Thank you for listening. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And for more on this story and others as they develop in the election year ahead, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall.